Well, in about a month or so, I will have completed two years here serving with the youth and as a youth and college pastor here at Cross Point. And let me tell you, in those two years, I've learned a lot as regards to serving students and how to connect with them. One thing I've observed in my time here is how much boys, I mean, excuse me, young men, try to impress girls that they have a crush on. From bragging about how strong they are to the ultra-competitive uh, nature when it comes to Nine Square, I've observed some attention-seeking tactics. Now, it's not just middle school and high school boys that uh, struggle with this attention-seeking tactics. And this is very much in post-high school men as well. While reading an online article that talked about things that men do to impress women, seven things stood out. One is men like to flash cash. They like to show how much money they have to try to gain the attention they try to be someone that they're not. They try to put on this front that they are perfect. There is nothing wrong. They have everything under control. They like to name drop famous people that they know. I was at this concert and got to shake hands with this person, or I have this connection with this famous athlete. They always like to talk about how nice they are. They pretend to be smarter than they are. And then the last two, they like to do insane physical stunts. And then they also like to be the tough guy, refusing to open up about their feelings. Those are things that stood out to me that, uh, on this article that guys like to do to impress women. And if I'm being honest, I used to be there. I used to be one of those boys in school. I used to think that if I did certain things, if I played well enough in basketball or got the best grades, or somehow I would catch the attention of that certain female that I really liked. I thought, as many men do, that if I performed well enough, I could win the approval of that particular crush. Now, for being honest, brothers and sisters in Christ, there are sometimes we fall into this kind of thinking that if we do well enough, that we need to be impressive in our relationship with God. We can go down this path of thinking that if I do well enough in a certain area of life that God will love me more. Or maybe God will bless me more. And if, an, if I act kind towards other people, then God somehow is required or obligated to act kindly towards me. And there's also the flip side of this thinking. That since I failed in this area, then God can't really love me right now. That somehow I must work myself back into God's approval. But the end of this kind of thinking leaves us to ask, what must I do? What must I do for God to like me? What must I do for God to approve of me? This is the same question that a certain city official had for Jesus. If you have your Bibles with you, please meet me in Luke chapter 18 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18. 
I'll begin reading from verse 18 in Luke chapter 18. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. I just want to stop here and just kind of dive into these first two verses. At the beginning of this story in Luke's gospel, we see a city official or a ruler asking Jesus what he must do to be approved by God to inherit eternal life. Verse 18, what must I do? It's plainly there. He's asking, he's thinking, I have to do something to inherit eternal life. Right away, we see that this ruler thinks that he can do this by his own actions, that he can win God's approval. Now, the answer that Jesus gives him back uh, can kind of be confusing on the front end because it kind of seems like Jesus is denying his deity, which would be very problematic to what we as Christians believe about the Trinity. I think if we study a little bit further, we'll find that that is a different case. The Holman New Testament commentary puts it this way to describe Jesus' answer. Jesus caught the man's attention by challenging his description of Jesus as good. And only one person can be truly good, and that is God. Thus, unknowingly, the administrator or the ruler had linked Jesus to God. Jesus caught the link, brought it out into the open, and repeated the traditional Jewish theology in confessing that God alone is good. In doing so, Jesus did not affirm nor deny to claim his own deity. Luke expected his readers, however, to see the link that Jesus made to affirm the obvious, that Jesus, being good, was also God. Jesus then continues to answer this this man in the following verses, so let's pick up Back our passage in Luke chapter 20. Jesus continues telling the ruler, You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. So here we see see that Jesus continues his answer um, with this man, Uh, In the second part of the response, we see the ruler uh, being reminded that God's law is holy and God's law is good. Jesus then exposes uh, the ruler's false understanding of the law, though, as the ruler foolishly responds that he has kept or observed everything perfectly from his youth. The Moody Commentary says this concerning the ruler's attitude uh, in response to Jesus. The response of Jesus to the ruler's greeting was not a denial by Jesus of his own deity, but a question designed to expose the ruler's superficiality. The man had a superficial understanding of goodness, therefore a superficial understanding of God. As the conversation continued, he showed, this is important, a superficial understanding of the law. And finally, he proved to have a superficial understanding of Jesus, for he failed to demonstrate humility before Jesus or willingness to follow Jesus, because that meant giving up the comforts and securities he possessed in his life. We see this as we continue reading our passage. In verses uh, 21, the ruler responded, I kept all these things from my youth, he said. And when Jesus had heard him, he told them, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very 
rich. From our passage today, we see three problems with the ruler trying to justify himself by the law. The first one is, the law was never meant to be the means by which someone inherits eternal life. On the contrary, the law was meant to expose sin, to expose humanity's helpless state and need for God's grace and forgiveness. Paul says this in Romans 7. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. But I would not have known sin if it was not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it means to covet if the law had said, do not covet. And sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced me in coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandments came, sin sprang up to life and I died. The commandment that was, resulted, that was meant for life resulted in death for me. So here we see that this law was never meant to save. It was always meant to expose sin, to bring people back to God, the source of their salvation. The second thing we see from our passages as a problem with the ruler is that the ruler thought that by observing, that observing the law was purely an outward-based action. We sat in the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapter 5, that Jesus expounds the Old Testament law and shows that it's not just an outward-based action. Matthew 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder. Realize that that was the same commandment that Jesus quoted back to the ruler when addressing uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life. He said, do not murder. Whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. Also later in the same chapter, Matthew, in Matthew 5, Jesus expounds on the commandment, do not commit adultery, which is another one. Again, the ruler said, hey, I've observed this from my youth. Jesus expounding said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. From these two passages, we can see that Jesus explains sin to be much deeper than an outward action. Sin starts in the heart. Sin is a heart problem that manifests itself then in outward actions. That's the second problem that the ruler had with trying to be justified by the law. He thought it was just an outward action when sin... And reality starts in the heart. The third problem that we see with the ruler trying to justify himself by the law is that humanity will always come up short when trying to be justified by the law. I mean, we, we read this in, in our passage in Luke 22. Jesus told them, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have, di- distribute it to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And after he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. We see that in trying to be justified by the law, you will always come up short. Now, I want to clarify one thing. When Jesus said to the ruler that he lacked one thing, he's not saying that the ruler was almost perfect. Like somehow if the man actually had sold his possessions, that he would have uh, been justified by his works. That's not what Jesus is trying to say here. We need to remember that Jesus is talking with someone who is trying to impress God with his works. So all Jesus needs to do is to expose one sinful area of his heart. And that results in exposing the true sinful 
selfish, fallen nature of the ruler's heart. James 2 says this, whoever keeps the entire law yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. Needless to say, this man has been exposed. Now, to illustrate kind of what this picture looks like, bear with me for a moment. Um, If you are a middle school, high school, or college student, please raise your hand, because I'm going to need your help. Last year, there was a, a kind of a popular game. It was kind of like Mafia. You played on the phone. What was it called? It started with an A. Anybody? Among Us. Yes, that's what it was. Thank you for helping me. And so um, Among Us, you, you have uh, regular people, right, doing tasks. And then you also have uh, bad guys. What's their names? Imposters. Thank you. Yeah, so you have imposters who, who try to act like the common people, but really they're there to... Um, disrupt the game, to try to make you lose the game. Now, what do you say to other people that you're playing with when you, when you think you know someone is an imposter? You, you, you claim that person to be what? Starts with an S. Sus. Yeah. Sus is a, a word that's short for suspicious. You call him sus because you see him acting as someone who he is not. Bear with me. This is basically what's happening here in this story. This ruler's trying to play the game like he is a super righteous person, but here comes Jesus. He calls him sus or suspicious, and he exposes it by exposing his sin. Now, the ruler ends up walking away because uh, when, when Jesus calls him out as if he is too proud to humble himself before Jesus. Because when sin is exposed, there are two options. One option is that we turn away from God and try to handle our sin on our own. Which, let me tell you right now, never goes well. And uh, it, it, sin never goes away. It's not dealt with. The other option is then to turn to God because God is the only one who can truly forgive us for our sin. And he casts our sins away and it goes as if it goes to the deepest parts of the ocean. And he chooses not to remember it. But here in our story, we see that the man turned away from God in tears. But I pray that when you or I have our sin exposed, that we would turn to God instead. What we see next in our story is that Jesus turns to his disciples and kind of has one of those teaching moments. Have you ever had a moment like where you experience something out in society or at a restaurant or something and something just goes bad and you turn to your family like, okay, now kids, that's what not to do. This is what to do. And you kind of have a teaching moment because something you just observed, has gone terribly wrong. This is kind of what's happening here. Jesus turns to his disciples to have a kind of a teaching moment here at the end um, of the story. So if you have Bibles with you, please meet me again in Luke 18, now in verse 24. Seeing that he became sad, the ruler being sad, Jesus said, how hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it 
who heard this asked, then who can be saved? He replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Then Peter said, look, we have left, uh, we have left what, we have, what we had and followed you. So he said to them, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left a house, wife, brother, or sister, parent, or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time in eternal life and the age to come. In this closing passage of our story, we see this well-known phrase pop up. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And now, Jesus kind of gives a really good picture of what the impossible looks like. A camel, a huge animal trying to fit through the tiniest hole, a tiny hole at the top of a needle, what is called the eye of a needle. Literally impossible. But Jesus says that it would still be easier for that to happen than for someone who has wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, here's another statement that's worth spending some time to study because on the front end, it seems like Jesus is saying that anyone who has wealth has a harder time getting to heaven than an eye, or than a camel going through the eye of a needle. And the reality is, everyone sitting in this room, or part of, you know, central Illinois, America, relative to the rest of the world, we are pretty wealthy. Yeah? Yes? So what does this statement say about us? What is Jesus really trying to communicate here in this passage? Well, one, what Jesus is trying to do, he's trying to break down this, this Jewish stereotype that a rich man was seen as more blessed by God than someone who was more poor. Jesus wants people to know that it does not matter what financial status you have, God wants, desires you. He loves you you. Just because you don't have as much as a comfortable lifestyle someone else in the community doesn't mean God loves you any less or cares about you any less. The second thing that Jesus is trying to communicate here is that those who have wealth have a tendency to trust in their resources rather than trusting in God. For this rich young ruler, this particular person, he found his identity in wealth. He probably liked being treated well by the public because of his status. He probably enjoyed not having to worry about whether or not he was going to make ends meet. Because of this, we see that in the end, the ruler chooses his wealth over following Jesus. So what is Jesus saying here? Seeing those who are more dependent on themselves, those who find their identity in their possessions and their material goods, those who are selfish in what they have and keep it to themselves rather than giving it and using it um, to glorify God and to expand His kingdom, it's those people who live a life to serve only themselves. And the reality is, is when you serve only yourself, it's impossible to serve God at the same time. It's impossible to serve both money and God. We read that earlier in our study of Luke a couple Sundays ago. That 
is what Jesus is trying to teach to his disciples. So what are some takeaways that we can have from this passage? One, God desires your heart. The ruler missed this. He thought that he had to do certain actions to be approved by God. He thought that he had to live up to the standard of the Old Testament law. But God desires your heart so that when you are exposed of your sinfulness, you don't have to flee because you have to somehow build yourself back up to come back to God. You know, last weekend we had that summer retreat that I was telling you about it, and announcements, and our topic was grace. And we talked about this in, in one of the small groups at our cabin. Uh, we had a student open up um, in my small group and said, yeah, it's really hard to experience God's grace because I feel like I don't deserve it. And I was like, yes, that's exactly what grace is. You don't deserve it. And I know uh, a lot of us here, including myself, struggle with this mentality of receiving something and just receiving it and not having to do anything to receive it or not having to pay it back. We struggle with that. So God desires your heart. And what does this look like? When when your sin is exposed, when you've blown it, you come to God in humility and just sit in his grace. Because what does that look like for your heart? You are saying, God, I need you. God, I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. I need to be in a relationship with you. And I don't deserve it, but you still show me grace. So God desires your heart, especially when we've blown it. The second takeaway is that salvation is only possible with God. That phrase, what is impossible with man is possible with God, is referring to, okay, how how can someone then be saved if it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for the wealth to inherit the kingdom of God. What we see in this picture is wealth. Yes, we might look at it as a material thing. I think it's also talking about wealth and spirit or being righteous in your own eyes. And so what happens when, when we are righteous in our own eyes, it's only by God's grace that he breaks us. Because when we're trying to win God's approval by our own actions and we are self-righteous and we think we're worthy of it, it's only by God's grace that He breaks us down and exposes when we do need Him. Because without God, I'm left to choose my own selfishness. Without the Holy Spirit living in me, I will choose my sin every single time. So today, this morning, if you don't have that relationship with God, if you've been trying to win God's approval, I ask you, will you come to him, give God your heart, and realize that you can't be saved by your own self? And this is something that's really hard for us to understand. I just had a a friend literally come to uh, our house a couple weeks ago. He's 25 
had served in ministry and said, Kent, I realized a couple weeks ago what it meant to experience God's grace. It's a temptation for all of us to try to win God's approval, to win others' approval by our good works. But we really need to realize that salvation, the only way to have a true relationship with God is when we start and understand that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. The last takeaway that we see here in our passage is that we are called as Christians, when we call ourselves Christ followers, we ought to give God our first priority in life. In the last part of this passage, Jesus responds to, to Peter, asking Peter's like, hey, look, we've given everything up. Jesus responds to Peter, truly I tell you, those there is no one who has left a house, wife, brother, or sister, parent, or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time in eternal life in the age to come. We are called as Christians to give God our first priority in life. Nothing else comes before God. I love my spouse. I love my wife dearly. We've been married for a year and a half now. And we still have to constantly remind ourselves, hey, I love you, but I love Jesus more. Hey, I love you, but right now I need to go spend, spend time with Jesus. I need to go read. I haven't prayed yet today. I need to go spend time with, with my first love, with my God. And I know for us, I, we don't have kids yet, but I know for those who have kids, it can be hard to live a life with God as your first priority when you have four little ones running around that you feel like you have to take care of. And they're very dependent on you, but I want to encourage you in those hard moments of life, God still needs to be your first priority. In your job, when you are leading a group, uh, when you are, are leading a team, and you have a big project coming up, I want to encourage you that in that moment, God is still your first priority. God is still first in your life. I hope that you see throughout this story, this connection, that God desires a deeper relationship with you. And that's just because of His grace and nothing that we can do. We just need to sit in it. Because in the end, the, the ruler asks, what must I do? That's the title of this lesson. What must I do? We often ask that question. But in reality, brothers and sisters, it's not what must I do. It's what God has already done. God has done the work, paid the price. That is the only way that we can live in His grace and freedom and forgiveness. What must you do? Accept what God has done. That's it. It's not about you. It's about Him. Our lives are meant to glorify Him as a primary reason for life. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for today. I thank you for this passage and the story of the rich young ruler as a, as a good reminder that, God, you desire our hearts. You 
desire us as we are. Broken people who are in need of your grace and forgiveness day after day after day after day. God, I pray that you would expose our sin as as not uh, as hard as that is to accept. I pray that you would show us our sin and see where we need you because God, the reality is we do need you. God, help us to be humble and come before you. God, help us just to sit in your grace today, this week, in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.